Reporting in progress. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Literacy View. We have a great night for you. Uh, we have a special guest with us, Naomi Pena. And Naomi is the founder of the Literacy Academy Collective, along with other um, people as well. She is a community and education activist, and she is the current vice president of District One Community Education Council. Uh, she and others got together with a mission to create the first Department of Education public school for children with dyslexia, language-based learning disabilities, and other struggling readers. So we welcome Naomi with us tonight. And um, we are going to be reviewing an article that is relevant to all three of us since we're all New Yorkers here. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> and the article is entitled, Hundreds of New York City Elementary Schools Use Teachers College Reading Curriculum Banks Said Has Not Worked by Alex Zimmerman and Yoav Gonin from the city. This is um, an ongoing collaborative series between Chalkbeat and the city, doing some investigating, uh, investigative work on learning differences, special education, and other education challenges in city schools. So usually I start off with a question, but because Naomi, people don't know you, and I think that you have such an interesting bio. I'd like you to talk a little bit about the work that you're doing, because I think it's very relevant to the article that we are reviewing tonight. So go ahead, tell us. Thank you, Faith. And thank you, Judy, for having me today. I'm super excited to be here um, and to have a conversation around this work. Um, so as mentioned, my name is Naomi Pena, and I am one of the fierce um, one of one of the fierce mom of six who joined forces together uh, to to create Literacy Academy Collective. Um, we are a group of moms who collectively have ten dyslexic children amongst us. Um, me myself, all four of my children are dyslexic. My oldest is turning 23 this year um, and my youngest are 12 year old twins. And just like any, any diagnosis, any condition um, in my household, dyslexia runs on a spectrum. So I have two that are kind of the more severely dyslexic. And then I have the other two who are more like the milder. So if you refer to the ladder of reading, Two of my kids are on the red and I have two who are around the orange. Um, and um, I come from this work just knowing massively the deep um, struggle of watching your children suffer um, in the classroom, how it takes a toll on their self-esteem, how as a parent, you really massively feel helpless um, in trying to support them. And for the last you know, almost 17 years, I've tried to figure out how I can support my children. And what I found is that every time I try to have a conversation, even other the word dyslexia, 
initially I was kind of dismissed. I was told I was an overreacting mom, that everything will be fine. One school um, psychologist told me that it was fine if one of my kids didn't read past their third grade, that some kids just read on their own, um, that I needed to calm down, which always makes me do the opposite. <laughs> of course. Um, but fundamentally, I also felt really deflated because I'm also raising children of color. And, you know, we, we could cut the stats however we want. But ultimately, when we look at the stats of children of color and reading, they're often the most, the, the ones that often need the most support. Um, initially, when I started this, you know, almost 17 years ago, I didn't have all the resources that I do now because I just didn't know what existed. I didn't know what I can do. I've heard of these things, but, you know, for a reading intervention course, I would need to stop working at 3.30 in the afternoon to go get a kid, bring them somewhere. I didn't have those resources available. I didn't have the time to take off of work, didn't have the support. Um, obviously, 17 years later, I do. Um, but you know, all of that cultivated into a conversation when um, Imagine Schools, when New York City put out an Imagine Schools process, kind of saying, you know, we, we would love to create new schools, please apply. Um, a couple of the moms had the same idea. And that's how this whole situation started. Two of the moms that were both public school moms, both of their children were struggling. They ended up at Windward. Um, did not know each other. They both approached the head of school with the same idea of like, we should do this. And the principal was like, hey, the head of school basically said, it's funny how you're approaching me. Someone else just approached me. You two should talk. Um, and that was kind of like the beginning of, of this whole wild and crazy, almost four year journey to get to this mm. point. Wow. So. Um- you know, Judy um, works with the New York City um, Department of Education, and we just want to make it clear that all views are our own views. And, um, you know, we are talking about New York City tonight, but I think this is relevant to schools across the country. Yeah. So, Judy, um, why don't you jump in right now? And if you have a question We'll, we'll use your question to kind of jump around and have our conversation tonight, relevant to the article, of course. Yeah. So, Naomi, first of all, I want to thank you for being here with us today. I've been really, really excited to meet you. And your story came to life for me. Um, everybody was listening to Soul the Story. That was like what everybody talked about. It was the only thing anybody talked about. And, you know, it was that was a really hard chapter for me because it talked about some things that I was formally trained in, one of them being reading recovery. In 2013, that was what was hot in New York City schools. And a lot of that training was great, but a lot of it wasn't. So, as you know, for the last five years, I, I was on the universal literacy team, and now I'm on another team that's also working towards the same goals. But one day I was listening, I think it was um, a podcast called First Person by Lulu Garcia. Yep. And it was your story. And I literally listened to your story. And I, and even when I see your face, 
I started crying. I could not take how much pain I heard coming from you. And it almost made me feel guilty that you had to suffer so much because I'm a mom too. I'm raising two boys. You know, now one of them is grown, you know, and all of our kids go down different paths. But when I heard your story that one of your kids, you know, he left school. Mm-hmm. I started to cry so much because, you know, you told your story and it was so honest and I felt the pain coming through. But then also hearing that you were able to get, you know, your other kids help, how that must have felt as a parent. Because, you know, I, I've had situations like that. All moms have. That's something else. And um, I think it was a courageous story to tell. I think it was an important story to tell. And I think you have so much you can offer our viewers. We want to hear the voice of parents because you know what? Parents really have to be a part of the decision-making on what's going on in our schools. So I thank you for being involved and I can't wait to get to know you better. Yeah. Thank you. It, it was, it was, um, you know, that they have reached out to me several months before um, just like talking about, my story. And once we got to the point of of recording, um, it was late night. I went over to the New York times office. Um, and, um, I was like, all right, we're going to do this. And I always depends on kind of the mood depends on the circumstance, but I, I can, I've said my story enough that I trust and believe, like I will say my story. And sometimes I cry, sometimes I don't. But when Lulu asked me towards the end, um, I was like, oh, man, I know. (laughs) And sure enough. um, And I don't know if she was going to keep it. Of course, she she kept it, which is fine, because I I do want people to know um, that this is just not something that's flippant. There's not something that's just like, oh, I just want my kids to read. Like they, they need to understand the deep toll this takes on the children, on the kids, on the parent. Mm -hmm. And also one of the narratives that I think is massively missing is the teachers. And I'm glad that Soul the Story did some of that. We're we're also um, talking to our pilot classroom teachers and um, they kind of gave a perspective that was like, man, I wish... I wish I can bottle this and like share it with the world so they can hear how just because you've been doing things one way, right? Does it mean that you have failed? It doesn't mean that you were bad. It doesn't right. mean it just means that you didn't know. It just means you didn't weren't taught the other way. Mm-hmm. And taught a different way and it works. Yes. You know, there's some fascinating stories that have come from our pilot that that literally. I walked out of there in tears of just like some really great feel, feel good stories. Yeah. Um, so and I, I, this starts yeah. with teachers. So I hands down agree with you. Yep. So um, I just want to jump in and say that um, I was one of those teachers trained um, in the eighties in everything that we know now shouldn't be done. And I got my master's in reading and it didn't really do anything to help me to know anything better. So I went down that road. So I I certainly understand it. And it was all self-funded as far as what I had to do to um, get to where I am now. 
But I do want to stick to the article. So I am going to throw a question out to you and a, a statement from the article. And I want you to um, respond. It says here in the article that um, the city has not formally requested that schools abandon teachers college or some of the most questionable practices associated with it. How does that make you feel? Um, It angers me deeply (laughs) because I think, you know, in a perfect world, we all, the administration knows why we're here. Um, And look, and I, I think it's, it's amazing that we're having this conversation to begin with, because I think individually, when you get to this point, you kind of feel like you're screaming in a void and, and, and no one's hearing. But it's also a testament of how massively big the New York City Public School Administration is. Like Department of Education is massive. And the layers to this is like a massively big onion that you, it just keeps going and going and going. Um, and it's not meant to be easy. And it's not as a as a parent in the system, just navigating the way this works. Mm-hmm. It's never easy. I mean, look at how to apply to middle school, how to apply to high school, yeah. applying for college. It's mm-hmm. insane. Yeah. Um, So I never, I never expected this to be easy. And I've been in the education space as a parent advocate for the last eight years. Mm -hmm. So I fully am immersed and knew that none of this was going to come, you know, easy. But I also think the fact that there is this level of autonomy that exists Mm -hmm. in the Department of Education, particularly from school to school, there's like a ridiculous amount of curriculum that principals can choose from. And that's great, except there is no real active push to say why you can't choose from these curriculums. Like why do we have 50, I don't know, 50 math curriculums I'm hearing like why Right. <laughs> you can't tell me they all work because if that was no. the case, we all would have high flyers in math and that's not the case. No. So I've always questioned, why can't we just look at what's working and use that and make our lives so much more easy. Then we all know what to expect and what we're walking into. But it's it's not it's not something that I am astonished about. It's something that I'm massively frustrated about. But it also is a testament of we have a lot of work to do because I, we've all, I've always said I can train every single school teacher in the system in structural mm-hmm. literacy. But if the principal is not on board, and Judy, I think you would know this as a ULIT coach, Mm -hmm. I've heard that some ULIT coaches were ready and able to do some work. But if the principal was not on board, it was not happening Mm -hmm. in their building. And it's hard. It's hard to convince someone that what they've been doing is actually quite harmful. It wasn't helpful. Well, interesting, Judy, you actually said... um, something about do it yourself. You've mentioned this. Oh, I have seen that in the past. I'm not seeing that right now, but yeah, I have seen do it yourself. That's basically, you know, 
this article talked a lot about TC and yes, TC has a lot of pitfalls. Looking at the picture, adios to that, goodbye, done. Look at the word, slide through the word, apply what you know about those syllables or about word parts, word families, whatever it is. However, there's also schools nationwide that have a a do-it-yourself model where kids that possibly just graduated college don't know much about writing curriculum because I've been in education for 25 years. I don't have any business writing curriculum. I'm a great coach. I'm a great teacher. I have no... <laughs> Listen, I'm honest. I work hard. I bust um, my ass. I, I got Orton Gillingham trained on my own writing revolution. I am that passionate. And you know what? It took me a long time to feel confident, but I feel that for the last six years, I've invested my whole entire being besides taking care of my sons, to finding out how to do better for kids. And I think the literacy, uh, do-it-yourself is real crap. It has to stop. It has to stop. Teachers should not be writing curriculum. Let's have a lesson. Let's look at the lesson. Let's think about how to do a damn good lesson. But how much time do teachers have? Plan a lesson, write the curriculum, be on the leadership team, be on the data team. But the Judy, okay, so let's wait, let's wait, 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 one, wait one thing, Faith. One thing. So I was, you know, reading all the notes and I thought of a Chicago song. I don't know, Naomi, I don't know if you know Chicago. It's probably from the 80s, 90s. Anyway, there's a song. It's such a hard habit to break. And I think that that's what people are struggling with. Yeah, absolutely. Bad habits are hard for kids to break. Bad habits are hard for teachers to break. Bad habits are hard for principals to break. And shifting your mindset is harder for some people than other people. Mm-hmm. But I think shifts are starting. What do you say, guys? So I'm going to tell you that um, my experience, that's why I wrote Failing Students or Failing Schools, because that is the story of my life, that I was also, Naomi, a coach, Um, not in the city, but I was a regional literacy coach with Reading First here on Long Island. And mindset is the hardest thing to change. You know, you could show anybody how to do something, but to kind of shift a mindset after you've been trained and your heart went into something. In the article, they said, it's like all of a sudden you're told everything you knew is wrong is very hard. I was ready for that because I saw it myself. But a lot of people um, just um, feel whatever they were doing did work. So I want to go um, back to the article, and there was something else that I wanted to throw out there to you, and it said, um, which this was interesting, uh, a significant chunk of students, particularly those who have support for reading at home, have no trouble learning to read under the teacher teacher's college model. And multiple educators said they appreciated that the program treats students as thinkers who should be encouraged to develop a love of literature. Well, I'd like to know what you think of that, Naomi. I will tell you that all children are thinkers. 
all children love to read and all children want to do well. Um, for, I would just tell you from my own personal experience for years, I was told, you know, I was questioned if the reason that my children could not read was because I wasn't reading enough to them mm-hmm. as if the, the words that I would say to them would miraculously like make things better. Or if I had books at home, because apparently if you just hold a book <laughs> by way of, of some magical pixie dust, it's supposed to work. Um, it's not like you could sleep underneath the book and it just like automatically transfers into your brain, like in some movies. Um, I will tell you that the amount of, um, of, of, of sort of, the way that my children were um, described throughout the years, particularly my oldest, um, really starts to take a toll on the child. When you're list, the first, I think one thing people need to understand is as a child, your first social interaction outside the home is in the classroom. That's right. Socializing with, with students, but it's also your first interaction with adults outside of your home. And, you know, that's why a, a, a positive story of a teacher is so impactful on a child. Like that can, that, that makes the world of a difference. If that's you're mean right. and you are heard from an adult outside of your home, you feel like you matter. You feel like you're acknowledged and you're appreciated. But on the flip side, if what you're hearing from these adults is that you're lazy, that you don't care, that you're not invested in your education. And by default, if your child is that way, you must be the same way as well. That starts to take a toll. And as a parent, when you don't know any, you know, I always look at my teachers as part of my village for that one year. I always made it a point to sit down with teachers and say, hey, this is the way my child learns. He's diagnosed with dyslexia. And I was always astonished by how dismissive people were of of that. People were like, oh, that's just reversing letters. They're fine. I'm like, no, it's not. (laughs) Um, And either I was seemed to like be overreacting or it's fine. Don't worry about it. But in some, there was this one year where um, he was bedwetting. He was in the third grade and he was bedwetting and he, he didn't want, he was school refusing. And I didn't realize how damaged he was in that classroom until he went to fourth grade. And he later told me basically that that teacher just for whatever reason did not see him. And literally he was invisible in the classroom and she made it a point to make him invisible to the point where even after he left her classroom and he went beyond he would see her in the hallway and he would want to say hi. And she would, she would ignore him as if, you know, she's, he stole a candy from her or something like that. And um, I think people need to understand that children are not, are don't care. Children do care. Children want to do well, but if you don't empower them with the right information and give them the tools they need to be successful, it's not going to matter. And I, this is one of the things that I've, we've, we say as a team is reading is, is a civil, is a fundamental civil right. 
you know, there's an ugly history in this country of how we limit to read who can read and the implications of that, but also the access that grants you. Mm-hmm. I mean, and reading is so ingrained in our lives. I mean, in, in order to look at your phone, you need to read, right? Mm-hmm. Going to a restaurant to read a menu, you need to read. Right. Even going to the DMV, like to pay your tickets, like it's all massively involved. And the minute you don't have that access, it literally dictates the rest of your trajectory in life. Yes, yes. Judy, um, it says in the article that um, out of 600 public elementary schools, 48% said they were still using TC and about 200 elementary schools did not participate in this survey. And it's assumed that those 200 probably are using TC. So the number is way higher than this. Um, You know, I know that you and other coaches are working very hard doing what you're doing, but um, what, what do you think about this idea of people still holding on to something that has, that's so controversial, you know, like why, what, like, and we, I know we said it's hard, it's a hard habit to break, but come on. What do you think about that? Is Are those numbers accurate in your estimation? So I think that people's relationship with TC is like a bad marriage. And I think the marriage has to end. Um, I think that I personally believe, my personal belief, not the DOE belief, Judy's belief. I definitely think we have to have a drop-down menu of evidence-based science-backed choices of what we can use for our literacy buck. And Faith, I know I say this every episode, it can't just be for that 30 minutes of foundations or phonics. We have to have a phonemic awareness component. We have to have, you know, what does the rest of the ELA buck look like? I don't think it really should be optional, in my opinion, to use that program anymore. And I think it's unfortunate because You know, yes, they came out with a new revised program. We don't know how that's going to do in the field, right? Every program takes a long time to show if it's gaining good results. But the proof is in the pudding. The data was very low citywide using that program. And I think it's also unfortunate. What about schools that didn't want to spend more money and said, you know what, I'm going to use the old version of TC. And they continue to have kids looking at the picture, not sliding through the word. That's really hard for kids. If their whole literacy block, there's pieces of this, there's pieces of balanced literacy, and then there's pieces of foundations, but here I'm being told I could use the picture, kids get confused. Yes, well, that's the problem. That's the problem. There's these mixed- No, it's not just a problem, Faith. It's- It's (laughs) BS. All right. So Naomi, in the article, it said that it would cost up to $425 per classroom to update TC. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that would really make a difference? I look, I I I fundamentally believe, you know, this is this is 
like Julie said, this is this is something that if it's been proven not to work, updating it, adding some season to it is not going to make it taste any different or the outcomes any different. Um, and it's lovely that, you know, they're at a point where they want to do better. I think, you know, I think the tides are turning. And I think, look, you know, the fact that Lucy Calkins came out and said, I need to update this program um, says a lot. And that's great. Um, but I also think fundamentally the fact that, um, there was no apology given, um, is also massively, um, frustrating, um, particularly as an end, not a a user, but an end product of, of that, of that experience. Um, I fundamentally feel like someone owes me an apology. (laughs) It's not me. They want, but not only no apology, but also pay on top of it to, to fix the mistake. Yeah. yeah. And I think that face started on Tuesday and Lucy. Honestly, Look, remember we were going to play a game where we take shots every time we say Lucy. I'm, I'm, <laughs> there's my iced coffee. <laughs> you might stay up all night, Judy. I, I think oh, no. so. There's I nowhere so. tomorrow. School's <laughs> on break. Yeah. So we could play um, the Lucy game. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I just think like we're, we're at a point where if we know something is not working, why are we adding more layers to something that is massively dysfunctional? Like you said, Judy, this is a very dysfunctional relationship. At some point, you have to get out of it because it. it's not going to get any better. Yeah. And if it doesn't get any better, who is at fault? Right. If you know you're in a, in a, in a really bad situation you need to get out and you need to get your resources together to get out and i think we're at that cross point where the day the day of reckoning is here we have decades generations of outcomes of the end result of this program and you cannot tell me that we have that the outcome of call it what it is functional literate adults is acceptable. There's no place in this country and in in, show me a job that allows you to have the end result people who have been failed. And that's fine. It's not, it's not fine. And the fact that we have resigned is like 20% of the population is just not going to read. Oh, well, then we should have a conversation why that's acceptable because it looks it's like it's a life skill, just like swimming, learning how to drive a car. Yeah. Reading is a fundamental life skill and it's a social justice issue if it's not attained. I I will share this quote with one quick, tiny story. Um, Dyslexia is a a very deeply genetic component. Um, And I've said this for a long time because it lives out in my household that if we have a child that has a reading disability, there's a high likelihood that one of their parents or someone in their family has a reading disability. and it's deep shame that's associated with that. No one's walking around going, yeah, I can't read, you know? So I know my husband now for uh, 20, almost 25 years this year. And um, every time he would get a parking ticket, he would give me his card. He would give me the parking ticket and he would ask me to pay for it. And, you know, but grudgingly for every time he gets a parking ticket, I get all like, sassy and I'm like what do you think you are I'm not your secretary I should get paid for this you know years and years and years right um 
or like whenever he had anything to get filled out, he's like, listen, I really don't have time. Can you just fill this out for me? I'm like, whatever. Like, and it wasn't until start working on this project that we, um, we were talking. I, I don't know if you want to get into it, but there's also a documentary about us. That's about our story, individual story about our journey. Um, and the director was interested in talking to him and, we were talking about, you know, just how it was for him to struggle to read and how that's why we we unfortunately had to leave the public school system literally to save my youngest son. And he was like, listen, I, I don't want him to experience what I experienced. And we started for the first time in over 20 years, he started to divulge some of his story. And it then occurred to me that every single time he's given me his parking ticket and his card is because he couldn't read the website and I asked him I was like wait a minute I was like is it because you can't read the website he's like yeah I have a hard time reading it and I'm too ashamed to say it so I just you know let you say whatever you want to say as long as it gets paid um and that's just a snapshot of like an adult who's massively talented in the space that he's in but it's that deep shame that you carry that you don't want to get outed. You don't want people to make fun of you. Like it starts in the classroom. Yeah, it sure does. So here's something for both of you. <laughs> you know, listening to you, Naomi, um, you speak so eloquently on this, really. Um, but there are some quotes from this article from teachers and principals. Want to just say a couple of them here. Um, in education, what seems to happen is people throw the baby out with the bathwater, said a Bronx principal who spoke on condition of anonymity. There is no one program or curriculum that solves all. And basically, it goes on here. It says, um, they're, they're being thoughtful at Teachers College about this research and where those gaps are. In other words, in thinking about adding decodable books and the units of study that, you know, like, come on, give them a chance to, to make good on this. And there were other quotes in here, um, you know, again, so I have not tried to simply have a one size fits all. That's another um, person who said, um, I do get some pushback from some schools who have been using this as an approach and it feels like it works for them. Um, so I have not tried to simply have a one size fits all so that there are teachers who feel, you know, this approach is fine. And, you know, they might want to say, you know, you dyslexia moms, you're a small number. I'm sure you felt like that. So why should we have to turn ourselves upside down just to satisfy a small number of people when it seems to be doing okay. You know, that's not how I feel. I'm reading it because I'm taking the quotes from here. So both of you, I'd love to hear what you have to say when you hear principals, teachers talk about this as if um, it's a burden for them to have to change, that really we should, you know, continue and maybe tweak it a bit. I would say that 
going back to the original comment I had, there is no other space in any professional setting that is ever acceptable to have any person do anything less than a hundred percent in achievement. No other space. Mm-hmm. I think this narrative that is just, just a group of this, and I've heard this, I see it, I've I've been tagged on it on 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 Twitter mm-hmm. that I am you know just a dyslexia mom who I don't see why we need to change curriculum to maybe. of the population that can't read. But on the flip side, what people don't understand is that structured literacy is proven scientifically to support 95% of all readers. So this is right on (laughs) my child. This is for everyone's child. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. What people don't also acknowledge is that those readers who struggle to read on TC, a lot of those parents ended up getting tutoring outside of the classroom. Hello. That's what we do. Yeah. You're, you, so you're, they're supplementing the support that actually, if we go have a curriculum that can teach a child to read the first time would not. You know, I hate to bur- burst the the, the the tutoring industry, but it would, there wouldn't be a need for Nothing that. Nothing would make me happier than to be on the other side of this preventing problems rather than picking up the problem. That's funny that Naomi said that I actually wrote down my own little quote. I tutor a hell of a lot of kids under these circumstances. Mm-hmm. Why? I live in a wealthy town, work in the South Bronx. I'm busy on Saturday morning. Very, very busy. This shit doesn't work anywhere. (laughs) In my town, they're still using it in TC. And it has to change. And you know what's going to happen? Faith has the right mindset. You know when change happens? When parents become more informed and say, this shit's not happening anymore. It is time to make sure that every kid can read Does that mean that everything that I learned in my past is wrong? No, there were great things. There were actually great things. And I talked about it on previous episodes. I'm not going to go back to that. But something has to change. Enough is enough. And you know what? I hope that parents, not just in the suburbs, make noise. Because we had one episode, you know, my friend Izzy, she's African-American. I said, Izzy, why are more African-American moms screaming on Twitter? And she said, you know what? There's a stigma. It's not easy to scream. Hey, my kid is struggling. Yeah. But I think it's time for parents to become super brave and say, shit, this has to end now. It's not okay anymore. What the hell is going on in that classroom? And if my kid can't read, it is your responsibility to ensure that my kid comes out literate. Absolutely. It's interesting. I don't know if you watched that episode, Naomi, with um, Izzy. Trey and Izzy. Um, Trey Hadrick and Isabel Simmons. Um, but Izzy said something that I would love um, to hear what you think. She said that complaining is a privilege. I will never forget that. That yeah. stuck with me. And um you know, you really have to feel worthy enough in this space 
to be able to stand up for yourself. Um, your thoughts on that as somebody who is a Latina, am I saying that right? Yes. Not because honestly, I'm I'm old. So for me, I grew up. No, I'm serious though. You know, I grew up that it was Hispanic. Then yeah. it was Latino, Latina. Now it's Latinx. And I don't want to be rude, but I don't know if I'm saying the right no, thing. I, so. Listen, I appreciate you asking. I love being <laughs> Latina. I will keep with my Lat- was saying I'm Latina. Um, I absolutely fundamentally agree with her. I, you know, um, there's that saying with um, with now past um, Senator uh, um, Lewis is good trouble, right? So there, there's this, this ideology that um, you have to be able to say something. And in the space of advocacy or just, you know, being a parent for your child, you have to know what you are asking for. And, you know, I think one of the things that I've always said about my oldest son is that he's my training wheels in this process. Aww. Um, unfortunately, fortunately, I don't know. Um, and it's one of, you know, I think as, as you heard in the podcast with New York times, it's one of my, my, the one thing I wish I can redo is if I can go back and take everything that I now know and use it, I know he would have a massively different outcome. I'm sending you this book. Okay. I'm sending you this book because your story, and I think I've said this to you, your real life story is this story that's a fictional account of a family hoping that people wouldn't struggle the way your family did. I'm trying to prevent that. And I have a copy in Spanish. So I'm sending you both. Yeah, um, I can't wait to read it. I cannot wait. uh, I want you to have that as a gift because I think it's really important in the work that you are doing. Yeah. One of, one of the things that I, um, that I learned is that once you start highlighting a problem, you, you will have to, um, be ready to follow through on that journey. And I will tell you that, um, it made me sworn enemies with some teachers and some principals in my school district because, I pushed and I pushed and I pushed and I never took no. I refused to take no. Even some school counselors. I was like, no. And and I remember one time that I had a standoff with a school counselor around something on my son's IEP. Um, And I had known what was going on. And then when I saw it in action, um, the teachers were like, I, they were, she was giving her something, you know, her kind of her review and. The teacher's like, I don't know whose child that is, but it's not this one. This is not what we're saying in the classroom. And she just wanted to wrap up the meeting and have me sign the IEP. And I said, I am not signing the IEP. I do not fundamentally believe what's there. I have some problems with it. And she was like, well, we have to end the meeting. I said, well, I'm not signing the IEP. And I literally took the rest of the day off. So I can sit here all day. I've been at those kind of um, marathon IEP meetings. That's for sure. What ended up happening was it came to light that the reason the school psychologist did not want to entertain the conversation was because in order to satisfy what I was inquiring, she had to do another set of battery of exams that she didn't want to do. (laughs) 
But these are things that you do not know until you start asking and prodding. You have to understand that then you become labeled as a troublemaker, as you know, you your calls. Yeah, you stop your calls, stop getting answered, your emails start going into a black hole. But the fact that you're consistent (coughs) and you're committed to doing that is a testament of like how unwavered you have to be in your child's education. But understand that as a person of color, when you're trying to advocate in this space, the answers always comes differently when you're someone that's not. Mm-hmm. And that's always, and I've, I've known that in this space. I know like, you know, if I was a GNT parent, my concerns would be addressed like this. Curriculums will probably come out of the sky for me, but because I wasn't, because I was a, a parent with a child that was struggling and I was open and honest about it. I was immediately made to seem like it was my fault. Somehow it was me. You know, yeah. I was always getting questions, everything okay at home as if like, if whatever, you know, the perception was of me and my home and my child was the reason he couldn't read. Correct. Correct. Judy, um, you know, as I was reading this article, it seemed as though um, the chancellor, David Banks, really wants this change. And yet he kind of knows that the principal's have the last say that it's, you know, everybody is, uh, makes their own decisions in schools. The principals have complete autonomy to um, choose what they want. Um, What do you think about this idea that um, every school could kind of do their own thing? And yet it seems as though the mayor and the chancellor want this change and yet it's so slow to happen. What do you think about that? My honest opinion, I think it's happening pretty fast. I think you think that there it's are happening quickly. I do. Right now I feel that way. Yep. Yep. I think it's really happening on the district levels. I hear more buzz about it from my friends, from my fellow coaches. Um, I hear principals that are getting trained in letters now. I haven't heard about that before. So I think great things are happening, but I think there's one roadblock. I think that, you know, I don't know how it is in other states, but, you know, teacher ratings are attached in many, many schools to leveled literacy, FNP, TC running records. And that's sending a very mixed message to teachers like, wait a minute, am I doing this or am I doing that? However, I think we're, uh, the, New York City is going to be the city that the whole world is going to look at as the pioneers to say, we are doing this. We are taking this seriously. We are uni- using universal screeners. We are getting to be experts in a cadence, math, growth. Then why are they saying in this article that only 40, 48% of the people, rather 48% of the schools that they asked are still doing TC? That doesn't seem like that's happening quickly. Plus, they said that another 200 probably are using it. So I'm based on the numbers in this article, that doesn't sound like it's happening so quickly to me. Naomi, your thoughts? Here, Um, you know, I think one thing that people need to keep in mind is the true size of the New York City public school system. 
Um, Judy, correct me if I'm wrong, but we have like what 1,800 schools. I or don't. Is more. I have to. I'll, I'll look it up qu- quickly. But um, we have a massive amount of schools under one yeah. jurisdiction, yeah. and even more principals, administrators, you know, thousands of teachers. Truth is, to to when you think about how this started, just under the this administration, you know, shy of two years ago, to where we are right now, it seems like light years ahead you also have to understand that our our group has been advocating this now for four years under the previous administration and that was you know a lot of people were like yeah that's great work but no one kind of had the the drive or the want to want to implement anything so the fact that we're here is, is a massive testament to what the commitment is I think also there's a deep understanding that the amount that is allocated for Carter cases in New York city is astronomical. And for those who do not know what Carter cases are, these are the cases um, like myself, when you leave the public school system and you go to a private school, you then um, have to sue the department of education every year to get your tuition reimbursed. And the minute you set a, a, a sort of a, a precedent of the need, um, that means that, you know, for every year your child's in that school, the Department of Education is responsible for reimbursing you for that child's tuition. I mean, that bucket alone in New York City is in the billions. They set aside billions of dollars every year to pay for these children's tuition. Mm-hmm. That's a testament of how much they understand that they know they cannot meet the needs of kids. And it's just not children. It's not just children with dyslexia. It's, you know, children with various Mm -hmm. needs that cannot be met in a traditional public school. Mm -hmm. But I think we're, we're at a, we're, I firmly do believe we're at a crossroads here. I think so too, Naomi. And I've said this, if New York city public schools, the biggest monstrosity of a bureaucracy in the in the in the country can move towards structured literacy any place in this country and honestly i always think bigger in the globe can do the same because tc is not just in the united states no is everywhere yes. so i've heard from a teacher in ireland who yes. told me the same thing yes I think another thing that should be acknowledged is that there is a state that started to do this work years ago, Mississippi Mm -hmm. Mississippi started to do this many years ago. They, they, they had a different approach. They don't have unions. They didn't have to deal with, with all of that. So they went ahead and trained everyone. Mm -hmm. It took years, but they went from one of the lowest scoring states in literacy and their Mm -hmm. students to one of the, the top. And Mm -hmm. within, you know, it took a while because literacy is not just a plug and play. You don't plug in kids to an alphabetic phonemic awareness, uh, you know, plug in and and they're fine. But it took after a couple of of NAEP scores, they're now at the top. So you can't tell me that this is not something that's replicable if we are willing to put dollars behind it. Yeah, I have something to add also, if you don't mind. So I think that many good things were happening in 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 the city school system for a while. Uh, universal literacy 
was definitely an initiative where there were so many passionate people that were shifting. So there were a lot of people shifting. But I think one of the hardest things is in New York City, every time there's a new mayor, comes a new chancellor. So here potentially is all this good work. How do we make sure that if something good is starting, that it's sustainable and not not like, okay, that's it. New mayor's in town. New chancellor's in town. We're starting. That happened in reading first. So just to tell you. Well, in reading first, um, we would go in and work with school districts. And because um, these were low performing school districts, once these principals were trained, they would leave. And so they would go to school districts where there was higher pay and um, what, and we would lose them. And then it was starting all over again. So not only were the kids, it was a transient population, it was also transient as far as the people who worked in a lot of these. So districts. what's the solution, Faith? That could happen again. So exactly. So that's the problem that when you do this good work, all it takes is another leader coming in with an opposing view. And then it just back to square one. one. Exactly. So um, I, you know, I just, this is such an interesting conversation. I mean, we could talk all night, but I know that people have limited attention spans. And so I want to start trying to wrapping, you know, trying to move into wrapping this up a bit. Um, You know, one thing that I noticed in this article, they talked about getting buy-in from teachers. And I, I agree with that, that it you in order for things to happen, it starts at the top. It starts with leadership. And then the next step is this buy-in. How do we get buy-in, Naomi? And you know, and Judy will comment just as as far as um, you know, you're behind two schools now that are these specialized schools for dyslexia, correct? Uh, you know, you're you're piloting this in in two places. Um are you, are you looking for buy-in in more places? Is this going to be available to lots of kids? Because as you said, New York City is huge. So are you making a dent? Are you planning on expanding this? Is this just the beginning? You know, I'd love to hear about that. Yeah. So um, just to be clear, we're just in one place. We're, we're the ones doing the work in the South Bronx. There's some amazing other folks doing every, you know, a lot of other stuff out elsewhere, but the one piece that we, we can control is the one that we're, we're doing is, is the I one know you're in the South Bronx every day. I am not in the South Bronx every day. Um, we have someone on site who is there every day. Bless her soul. Elia Edwards. She does. She deserves an award, a medal, <laughs> a, a ticket tape parade because I'm in the South Bronx every day. Yeah. She, she's, she's in that building every day with those teachers, with the students. She's doing amazing work. Um, cool. and literally she's, she's our pilot director. She's the one that's like really the guiding light of, of, of our vision. And again, she's a mom with a child that struggled to read with dyslexia just as well. So she, she, and she's an educator herself. And she talks about the moment where the professional met the personal and how it, it kind of all, she had a moment of, of, of the blinders came off. 
And once you un- once you see what you could not see, it's it's hard mm-hmm. to ever go back there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our vision is there. We know that one school or our vision is to have a school in every borough. That's not going to cut it. It's just not. It's it's not going to be the end all be all. And the one piece that we know is fundamental to this whole entire work is the teacher training component. Mm-hmm. So that's one of our, you know, temples of our approach is creating a teacher, um, a teacher pipeline, if you will, or a teacher training um, opportunity where we can give up. We are, we've we've finessed and created. Um, already two summers in a row, an opportunity for teachers who are interested in structured literacy to take um, a summer training component. And then we partner them up with when we're teachers who do this work every day as their job over the summer. And they, and we create like a mentorship type of approach where um, they're working in the classroom with the students, but then they have mentor hours with where they are working and doing lesson plans together and we find one of the major um, feedbacks that we've heard is the teachers have said, I appreciate the on hands, hands-on mentorship that I'm getting, because when you're in the training, you're going, oh my God, how am I supposed to even fathom? hundred percent. Right? 100%, because everything is yes. like this. You're on a schedule, yes. you got things you got to get done. Mm-hmm. But once you're in the classroom... And then you see how it's being implemented and you see how it's supposed to happen Mm -hmm. over time, you start to see the outcomes. And that's one of the things that we heard from one of our teachers. Yes. Um, So back to our approach, we want to create a teacher training opportunity. We also want to create opportunities with districts. If they are interested in this, how this can happen, you know, we can come in. And talk about, you know, if they're interested in, they want to talk about curriculum, if they want to talk, like, how do we even start? We can help them guide them along the way. Um, I want to share a story from one of our teachers that she shared um, two weeks ago when we went to visit the, the school. One teacher highlighted, there's six teachers currently um, who have been trained and are working with the students. And one of these teachers, uh, had a student in our program last year and she says he did not move and he walked in unable to even write his name. He was pre-alphabetic. He was in a, he's in a third grade and um, she's taken, she's, she doesn't have him this year. She's in a different, in a different class, but um, uh, the teacher that does have him this year shared a story, how he was having, a fight with another kid and, you know, they weren't getting along. And the teacher said, you know what, come up during lunch. We're going to hash this out together. We're going to talk about it. She brings them up to the class and they're, they start doing the whole pointing. He did, he did, he did. She's like, Oh, she gave him two sheets of papers, two pencils. She said, write it down. These kids started like writing down and, and talking. So they, they hashed it out. But the piece that is, massively amazing is that one of the kids that was writing down his feelings and what he, what he was wanted to express was that kid who in September was pre-alphabetic and could not write his name. Wonderful. And that teacher who had him last year describes how learning what she's learned this year and seeing the growth of these students has meant the world to her because 
she's described how hard it is to even learn something new, how you don't want to do something new. You think you know the answers and it's, it's hard. It's hard to change. It's hard to accept that, you know, you didn't know and you were stuck in a situation and you were just doing as you were being told. But once you learn something different and you start to see the outcomes in that classroom, I will tell you every single one of our children in this pilot has moved. Some has moved leaps and bounds. Mm -hmm. Some is moving along, but they all are moving. Mm -hmm. And that's the testament to the work, how transformative it it can be. And if it's a teacher that's seeing that transformation, you That's can't true. deny it doesn't work. Right. Success breeds success. Judy, um, buy-in. Comments about buy-in. Um, do you think that um, there are ways to get more buy-in from teachers uh, so that they um, wouldn't feel like this is being forced upon them? That they would I actually... Think- come around wanting this? Is there a way to get in my experience with enough coaching, Mm -hmm. enough modeling of lessons and co-teaching and so forth? I think buy-in will definitely happen because say you come to a teacher, their data is low. They're like, oh my God, what do I do? How do I shift it? When you start talking about foundational skills and the shifts you can make, they're so manageable because first you might start with phoneme segmentation. Great. A kid got a little better at that. Then start looking at a nonsense word, being able to make the sounds and sliding through, then automatically read the word. It's so much more manageable than saying, oh, a kid is a level A. And then three months later, the Three months later, they're still a level A. And then it's March. It's an emergency. Oh, my God, they haven't moved. I think with structured literacy, it follows a scope and sequence. It can be much more manageable. I think we need to support our teachers to try to get the right resources into their hands. I know a lot of teachers are stressed out. You know, they don't have time to print out a lot of books. So it's working as a team, but also providing our teachers with the resources that match what we're saying. Because it's very hard to say, you know, we're shifting to from balanced literacy to structured literacy, but then the books in the class are still, I can swim, I can run, I can fly. (laughs) Exactly. I can can go on a track, whatever. Yeah. Right. So I think buy-in comes when we provide the right level of support, love, and um, shifting mindsets takes some time for some people, but I think it's being able to meet people where they're at and taking baby steps. Because I think once... Once you really feel the success that can happen with structured literacy and you see teachers becoming experts, I know, Faith, we go back and forth all the time about syllable types, but I literally fell in love with syllable types about six years ago. Like, I love them because (laughs) reading has a code. There's a code. It's not just making the sound for the first letter. It's being able to decode the whole word. Wow. A vowel team. It says, hmm. Eat meat. The vowels say e. It's just sad that for so long we've made kids rely on the first letter and look at a picture and then cross check back and forth. Like enough. Like right. look at the word. 
Right. It's not that and hard. I agree, I agree with you with the coaching element too, because, and just like you said, Naomi, um, teachers could be in this training and they're so deep in the training that they don't have time to reflect. That's right. And it's really the coaching and being able to have this sustainable model that helps them to finally see, oh, I can do this. Because a lot of resistance is fear. Fear of failure, fear of looking like they don't know something. And so fear comes out where they'll start to attack, they'll get defensive. Um, And when I say they, I'm saying, you know, people who seem to be more resistant than others, a lot of that is fear. Yeah, uh, I think. And then when you support people and you let them know there's nothing to be afraid of, that we're learners together and to breathe and take your time, it, it over time, there is that shift that occurs. But I do agree with the idea that leadership is pivotal. That's that's where it's at. It's so important. So let's wrap up, ladies. I think this was a fantastic conversation um, Naomi, any last thoughts you have that we didn't cover? Um, I think uh, one thing I wanted to mention briefly is also um, I think we we need to revamp the approach that we have with education in general. Um, I I know just as a parent, when I would go to parent teacher night and walk into the classroom, I always look at where my kid is sitting. I always want to see his desk or her desk, and one of the things that always And now that I'm in this work, I'm seeing things through a different lens. Um, When I would walk into the classroom and the the amount of plastered words that were everywhere, (laughs) as a a parent, I was like really overwhelmed. I mean, aside from like my child who has ADHD and all this other stuff, but there was this not this assumption, like if you don't know the words, the words are in the room. So like you have to like look around. And um yes. I think there I think we we need to understand that you know having poster boards of just like words everywhere <laughs> means nothing. Curtains of like I remember one classroom I said the same thing has like str- had strings that look like yeah. curtain rods. And it was just like poster boards of words on like on these strings across the whole entire classroom. And I was like, oh, my God, how 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 are we supposed to do this? But I, I think we need to understand, like, these are practices that were encouraged, that were told that, you know, you're doing a great job and let's 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 fill the room with words. And, and they will love to learn to read. They will love to go into that cozy corner with that book and do independent reading but none of that is going to be substantiated or be better if the child doesn't have the skills that they need to read. You know, reminder, K through two, you're learning to read. After the grade, you read to learn. Yes. And if you do not know how to learn, if you don't know how to read, math is not going to be fun with, right. with, with word problems. Science is never going to land. History, you're never going to understand aside from ELA, even PE, there's some reading in PE as well. Yes. So I think we need to understand that it's fine and it's not fine, but I think we need to finally come to terms that the way we've been doing things was not productive, was not helpful. Let's go to where the science, I mean, if we love science and we're reading critical thinking, 
the science has said where it should go. Let's go to that. Um, our hope also through Lizzie Academy Collective is that our school can be a lighthouse school that we can show, showcase what it looks like. We will have students who are moving. We can showcase how that move has changed and also hopefully give the courage to others to say, take the leap of faith. Let's let's look at the curriculum. Let's change it. And it starts with little things. Let's have all the, I know DOE is really pushing letters. Let's have everyone do letters because letters is agnostic of any curriculum. It's literally learning the science of what it is to read. I took letters. I'm not an administrator and I have my book right here. I took it myself because I wanted to know what people are learning. And that's if once we have that inquisitive, critical thinking, we start to realize that there is a better way. And once we know the better way, everyone benefits, not just our children, but also parents. Thank you. Thank you, Judy. Last thoughts? I'm going to try to be brief. Okay, so shout out to all those reading experts. Stop sending mixed messages. Today you like this, tomorrow you like that. We have to all be on the same page of what's the solution and how we move forward. The whole literacy block needs to be looked at from start to finish so that kids can take those skills that are taught in isolation and transfer them into text. I also want to wrap up by saying follow us on Twitter at Boxner Judy. Faith's Twitter handle is at Faith Workowski from High Five Literacy. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts and YouTube, The Literacy View, Real Teachers Letting Loose, and join our Facebook group, The Literacy View, Real Teachers Letting Loose. All right. So I just want to thank you, Naomi. Um, You just um, really were such a wonderful guest. I think parents are going to just absolutely love listening to you. And I would love to visit the city and see exactly what you're doing. All right, Judy, I'm um, let's go on a road trip. I think I'd like a road trip to see what you're doing. And please invite me. Um, I, I would love to see it. I think um, I'm here on Long Island, and I think there's a district right here doing some great work, too. They've been bombarded with a lot of visits lately. So I'd like to this time go and make a visit. So um, absolutely, please invite me. And like I said, I'm going to send you some of my books. And I just want you to also see on my website, um, it's called ifonlybooks.com. I have a free document that actually I think your organization would love to use. It's called Can You See Me? And it's a way of opening up conversation, like you said, with guidance counselors and social workers and people who might not really understand this. So take a look at that and you could download it for free. Great. All right. So thank you everybody for watching. This was fantastic. And like Judy said, follow us. We hope to see you soon. Thank you.